I, I've learned that the only people that really uh, that have gram scales are uh, drug dealers and people that have that really enjoy coffee, uh-huh. which is also drug use, by the way. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, uh, it is Friday, February eleventh. I'm in the basement, and I'm here with Nick. Giant robot smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody. This is the giant robot smashing into other giant robots podcast. It is Monday, February eleventh. My name is Ben Ornstein, and I'm here today with Nick Caranto, aka Q Rush. Hey, Nick, how's it going? Hey, man. So, have you seen any awesome animated gifs lately? Yes. I bet you have. Um, I think the best one was, is this guy. It's some kind of basketball player, and he just made a hoop. And then uh, it's this guy in the background that's just like, yes! And then there's waffles that just come down, and it just flashes waffles! And it's the best thing ever. How long until we see this in one of your talks? Um, approximately a month, because I'm talking in Brussels oh, for good. the Remotion conference. Oh, interesting. Um yeah, I was going to ask you about conference travel. I was wondering if I was going to see you at all. Do you have anything yeah. else on the docket? Um, that's the only thing I have planned for right now. I tend to... I have, like, a buffer zone. Like, I, I, I like presenting on new stuff and not recycled stuff. Mm. Like, as much as I like touring a talk around, I'd rather do something new because it's kind of challenging. Sure. So, all I have scheduled right now is the... Uh, talk for ruby motions inspect conference in brussels which is the end of march mm-hmm. beyond that i don't have too much lined up hmm. so that that actually gives me a, a great chance for a segue you've been uh, you've been using ruby motion lately yes and what have you been building with ruby motion so over the past almost seven months uh, i've built the Basecamp ios app it's kind of our first internal at 37 signals um, attempt at making an app the other apps we have um an outside company made it and we bought it and we continued development and kind of contracted out. But this is kind of our first internal uh, app development that we did. Uh-huh. And uh, how did it go? How do you feel uh, about it? <laughs> I'm glad it's out. So um, it was a very stressful week the week before uh, to get it ready and submit. And then, of course, we completely messed up everything for submis- submission. And then we submitted and then we had to wait a week and then it was an hour to review it, and then it was out. So we waited seven days for one hour. Mm. And um, I'm feeling I'm like now that it's out, I'm glad, and we can keep keep going with it. I think there was a lot of back and forth for a long time. With the, I mean, seven months is a long time. Yeah. So uh, I, I'm just super glad that it's out finally, and people can start playing with it. Mm-hmm. So you guys made uh, some architecture choices with that, with using mostly web views, right? Yeah, so the app, the way I put it, it's kind of like a dumb browser. Uh, All of the content in the app, anything you see, so Basecamp has uh, discussions, comments, uh, files, uh, to-do lists, to-dos, all sorts of stuff. All of that content is HTML5, Mm. and that's served directly. It's almost the same. It it is the same uh, web views that we use if you just open up Basecamp on Chrome or Safari or whatever your mobile browser is. Hmm. So you're um, reusing the same endpoints and all the markup and all that? Yep. Yeah. There's a few um, little style changes we do to hide some of the um, Chrome we have that we need for the web views, but hmm. it's all each, like all the content you see is all HTML. Hmm. So what took seven months? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. Um, 
So I guess I have to back up a bit. I hope you're ready for a story. I'm, I love stories. Okay. Story time. Uh, so I have to rewind to July over the summer. We had a kind of month called pitch. It was a, a month that culminated in pitch day. And uh, the joke was that uh, we get it off to do whatever we want. Mm. And, and I used that opportunity right around when that started was when Ruby Motion was released. And I had wanted to play with iOS, and I had tried to jump into it several times, and I just kept hitting a wall. And I think it's because I realized now that I just couldn't live inside of Xcode on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. So I decided to take that month to like learn how to write an iOS app, and we did. Where do you live instead? <laughs> I live in Vim. Okay. <laughs> That's the correct answer on this podcast. It, it, it is. Yeah. So um, I learned, so I kind of uh, I paired up with uh, one of our designers, Jamie, and we wrote a little app to get your files mm-hmm. from Basecamp. And that idea was rejected. <laughs> but uh, it kind of, one of the neat little things in the app it did, so it would show you like a thumbnail of your file with a little circle for your comments, and you would hit the little comment circle, and the whole kind of thumbnail would flip over like a card. Mm. That's a transition mm-hmm. in iOS, apparently. And it would have your com- the comments for that, uh, file and that was all HTML and it felt really native. So mm. we kind of realized, wow, that's really good. We could combine that with the web views that we had been doing for mobile and kind of make an app for, mm. for, for that. But it wasn't all for all of Basecamp to start. And this is kind of getting into why it took so long, right? So it was, it started as just an app to look at the latest stuff mm-hmm. in your Basecamp project mm-hmm. and it kind of expanded over time. We kind of realized that. Uh, if we release that, then people will be asking, okay, where are my to-dos? Where are my files? If I'm just seeing what's the latest stuff, I need to see everything in my project. Mm -hmm. So instead of dealing with those complaints, we kind of kept reevaluating where, where the app was and it eventually became the Basecamp app. Hmm. Um, I think another reason why it took a a while was because, uh, the summer is a kind of a downtime for us. Uh, the summer we have uh, four day work weeks mm-hmm. and everyone gets Friday off, um, except if you're on call or some of the support, they kind of do shifts on Fridays. Mm. And, um, yeah, so that's kind of like a, kind of like a downtime and the winter is really when we build stuff. Hmm. At least that's what I've seen. <laughs> so, uh, did you, did you feel rejuvenated after your summer? Oh yeah, definitely. For sure. I think uh, it was definitely a really, it was a new thing for me. And, um, the, the Fridays kind of give you time to do other stuff that it's like you would want to do instead because it's so nice out. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I think that was it. Like, but as the fall and winter approached, um, we kept adding more and more stuff into the app and probably in the last month or so I've been just heads down getting it shipped. Mm. So a lot of this, the fall and winter, we didn't have a lot of design attention on it, which I'm not a designer. Um, so I need, I need some help with it. And before that it was kind of like a skunk works R and D project. Like, can we make this app? Will it work? Yeah. <laughs> Is it going to be fast and snappy? We, we went back and forth on so many things. Uh, the, uh, just the navigation for the app. Um, we, you, for a long time, we didn't have like a nav bar for the app, which is kind of standard for iOS stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a long time, we played with how are you going to like jump in between projects and see your go from to do's to the latest stuff to files. So we played with a lot of different ideas for navigation mm-hmm. for, 
for a long time. So I'm glad that we finally made some decisions and shipped it. Yeah, I actually really like the sort of stacking metaphor that you guys came up with, too. Thank you. That's, so it's, that, it's great. So for, for the viewers. Yes, please. Sorry. Um, so whenever you click a link that's inside of a project, we, uh, the, the way we call it in, internally is we pop a sheet. So it's like we bring a new page that slides on top of the content. And then if you keep clicking in, it'll keep sliding sheets on top. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of reminiscent of the web, the actual desktop web view. And we call that stacker on both sides. Mm. So stacker was kind of, um, that was a pretty early thing we did. Uh, in, I, I think that was during the summer and we've had it since then because we really want, I, I really wanted, we really wanted to make it look like the, de- like the, uh, desktop. Mm. So it's super nice. We it's, played with all sorts of stuff for a long time, like the grabbiness of it. I used to be able to flick them a lot more. We kind of shut shut that down after a while. Hmm. So I think we came to a lot of good compromises with how that works. Mm, yeah. Uh, I think the the thing that really I, I really liked was, actually, I've, I've seen a lot of people that will do the, use the stacking metaphor, and they'll slide in the new page on top of the old one. But you guys left like 40 pixels on the left of the old one sort of hanging there. Yeah. Just to sort of really reinforce, like, this thing is on top of the old thing, and you can still get back to the old thing. And so for some reason, that, that actually made a really huge difference. Yeah, the fun thing is, um, so the whole, the whole app used to just be that. So, like, we used to have no native navigation uh-huh. <laughs> for a long, for many months. Mm-hmm. And eventually, we, and for a long time, we played with, like, a Facebook-style edge menu hmm. that you would kind of reveal yep. when you're on the when you were on the bottom of the stack, so to speak. And we kind of realized that like, there's no, it's, it's really hard at least to teach people that kind of thing. Mm. Like it, it needs to be really obvious. Right. Just, just, and it wasn't obvious for that kind of gesture. So like you would, I think the, the going back thing that's obvious, right? You know that there's a page underneath the page you're on and to get there, you would just tap it. Yep. And I think the discoverability of the swipe is something people don't see immediately. Hmm. That you can hold it and grab it over, hmm. so, or at least that's what I've seen from people using it. Interesting. That that was the first thing I did. I was like, I bet I can. Oh, yep. There we go. Yeah, but yeah. that's inst- like you got that instantly, right? Oh, absolutely. That's thing that we definitely wanted to to do. Yeah. How do you like Ruby Motion? Ruby Motion's really good. Um, I think it's kind of the next step for people that are already iOS developers. Uh, I think my case is weird. I really didn't know any iOS stuff and I came into it and it's really designed for people that know iOS. Mm. Um, but I think it's possible if you spend the time like any platform to learn with it. Uh, what I like is that I can, I can be in my normal development environment. I can be in terminal, I can be in Vim and I have my normal workflow. Like if I was working on a Ruby gem or a rails app. Yep. Uh, that, and, that's huge, actually. Yeah, I think it is. I think just for that familiarity alone, that people can use the editor they want. They can use TextMate, they can use Sublime, or whatever they use. Yep. So I mean, that, that was a huge win. Yeah, and like I have 10 years of Vim customization built up now, and muscle memory. <laughs> right. So it's like, for me to throw that all away is actually a pretty massive productivity hit, even totally. beyond the fact that I have to learn Xcode. Like, I'm, I'm starting from scratch now. Right. So I think pretty early on, I adopted the policy of like, don't go in Xcode if you can. Mm-hmm. Um, when I did the that files app, 
I tried to do some core data stuff, and you need to be in Xcode for that kind of thing. There's like a crappy uh, schema RB migration system that's like built into Xcode, and that just drove me nuts. So mm. like from there, I like decided, okay, no more, stay out of Xcode as much as possible. The only thing I really have open for for Xcode is the org- is the organizer, which gives you like documentation. And it shows you like crash logs from the device mm. and the console from the device. So like for that, it's great. But for like everything else, so we use no interface builder at all for the app. Uh, we used we use Xcode for nothing. I guess it's the <laughs> only thing. The the organizer in Xcode is all we used. Mm-hmm. And and you've been happy with that choice. It's been wonderful. Yeah, I think so. Given the con- given the constraint that we decided on, which is basically like all the content for the app is not native. The native parts of the app are kind of small. Mm-hmm. Um, like a, so, it's a dumb browser. So, like the most complicated thing we have to do is the stacker, and that's like it's not bad. It's a few animations, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And there's a few places where we have buttons. Um, the new project, the project menu is one of them. So we have like a stack of maybe eight buttons. Mm-hmm. And um, at the bottom, or in the top of the, uh, there's a home screen, and it's a table view. And that's the biggest native view we have, really. Mm-hmm. So that kind of stuff, like, you don't really need Interface Builder for, at least I didn't need Interface Builder for. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that kind of made us go in that direction where we didn't need Interface Builder was uh, iOS 6 has this whole API called NS Layout Constraint. Mm-hmm. And it's called, like, Auto Formatting, or Auto Layout, excuse me. And it's basically, it's described as ASCII art interface layout. <laughs> and it's really wild. Uh-huh. And it's really, really good. So with that, you can kind of lay out buttons in an ASCII art style. It's like bracket, button one, and bracket. Nice. Dash for space, bracket, button two, and bracket. And you can kind of get a, it's visual, it's, a, it's literally a visual format. It's like an ASCII art DSL. Yes, exactly. So that's kind of what what um, I just I'm going to hopefully wrap that up as a, as a gem. The I kind of abstracted on top of that. Cool. And that's that's the nice thing, right, about Ruby Motion as well is that we now have the power of gems that yeah. we can use alongside of of this. The thing that really makes me angry about quote unquote modern iOS development is that every single README you see, it's like just drag the project into Xcode or just copy the M and H files in, mm-hmm. and that drives me crazy. It's like that doesn't that completely ignore like if we were to do that in the Ruby world, like here, just drag this .rb file into your lib folder. Mm-hmm. We would just be like, what is wrong with you? You should package this as a gem and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So I think for that alone, that's the thing that Ruby Motion needs to do to like sell itself. Is that like this is kind of this is actual code reuse. Right. <laughs> this is actual like modern development that everyone else is used to, except you can actually do it here and you don't have to wait for Apple. Right. So, and I think that, like, like using your own environment, I think that tooling is actually a really big, big deal as well. Oh, totally. I think that's totally one of the like the phenomenal strengths of the Ruby community is that there's actually a huge focus on sort of developer happiness and productivity in that area, and it keeps changing and getting better all the time. Definitely. Like when some jerk goes and writes like a brand new thing called Gem Cutter. <laughs> yes. And then we all get to use Git to push our gems up. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, God, I, the segues are just perfect today. So let's talk about Ruby gems. Okay. Um, you guys had a little bit of a, a thing happen, huh? Yeah. So um, that was fun. Mm. Uh, this is the same week we were wrapping up the seven months of work. So it was like, it was a wonderful, perfect oh, storm. Terrible. For me. Yeah. I, I drank a lot that weekend. <laughs> um, so 
I guess I can I can tell another story. So around I was I think it was Wednesday. Uh, uh, let me back up further. So the week before the 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 fiasco went down. I don't have a name for it. Mm-hmm. Ruby gems apocalypse. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Winter storm. Ruby gems. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> this is the Boston of the Ruby world. Yes. A couple of weeks ago. <laughs> the um. We got an email from a student in Germany that was like, I think there's a vulnerability with the uh, with the RubyGem format. Mm-hmm. Inside of the RubyGem format, um, if you were to tar uh, untar a .gem file, uh, there's surprisingly a gzipped, it might be a tarred and gzipped um, folder of all of the Ruby files and anything else you included. And then there's a gzipped uh, file of the metadata. Mm-hmm. The meta the metadata, if you gunzip that, it is a YAML file full of the information for your gem. So that's how we get in RubyGems.org all of the information for your gem. So the version name, uh, the dependencies, the uh, email, homepage, all that junk is in that file. Mm-hmm. And we have to actually um, load that in memory on the RubyGems.org side. So uh, this guy, he didn't have... I think he didn't have an actual proof of concept for the hack, but he was like, I think this is exploitable. Mm-hmm. And basically that's what someone did. They uh, put some code in that metadata, pushed it up, and it ran commands, thanks to the wonderful YAML parser, Bummer. on the rubygems.org box. Mm-hmm. And I got an email, or no, I got a mention on Twitter on Wednesday morning of that week, when I was on the bus going down to uh, my co-working space that uh, someone had exploited the site. Hmm. So uh, from, was it the person that pushed it up or from somebody else? I think it was someone else because it was, there was a bunch of gems and um, basically the, the response was uh, throw the site into maintenance mode, which is basically like shutting it down. How did this person know the site got compromised? So they um, extracted, uh, there was a gem called exploit. It was very, obviously named thank yeah. you <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> and uh i think they they downloaded it and they must have looked at what it did because the code was in that metadata mm. okay so they must have downloaded it and looked at it because that's what i did <laughs> right so we shut the site down basically uh we downloaded those gems re- reset all the s3 keys and other stuff and then brought the site back up and that was kind of a problem because i didn't realize that the box had like in the security world, and this is something I learned, is that once once an attacker has run commands or has remote access, you basically have to consider the boxes like dead. Yeah. Because they could have done all sorts of evil stuff. Mm-hmm. And they could have done kernel injections. They could have run stuff. They could have done anything. Luckily, they didn't do any of that. Uh, we had a team from the Red Hat security nice. to look at the box and apparently they didn't run anything malicious but they did like ex- they did take all of the uh database s3 keys and post them to pasty mm. and encrypted they encrypted it somehow so like they at least they were basically proving that it was it was exploitable mm. so uh that kind of caused a bunch of shit to go down we decided from there um this is after i, I don't know what happened after we like got the site back up there was like a period from like 12 noon to like eight that i don't really remember it was a haze it was a haze of of people just yelling about gems and security and the boxes and all sorts of stuff yes 
I saw some of your frustrated tweets. There was a lot of, yeah. So basically, like, I got people that were just like, you should know incident response, you should know this and that. And it's like, this is literally the first thing that I've ever dealt with. Mm-hmm. And these guys know better. So it's basically from there, it was like leading and trying to like divert all this, not divert, but like funnel all this energy into actionable stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the infrastructure before we basically, so that box was compromised, right? We mm-hmm. had to take it down. And it was a bare metal box at Rackspace. So, like, you just can't restart that in right. a minute, right? It's not a cloud, it's not a cloud instance. Yeah. So, um, I had been asking for a long time that we, like, have some better infrastructure. Uh, the existing RubyGems.org infrastructure was basically two bare metal boxes. Oh, no, one bare metal box, one box at Rackspace that ran two VMs. Mm. And that was it. Mm-hmm. And, um, from there, it was like, okay, like we need to move. Like we can't stay where we are. Luckily, th- that those two VMs didn't get compromised, so we could keep them at least. Or I guess they didn't get connected to directly, so those kind of kept things running. So I, th- I feel like most people probably didn't find out that there was a problem. Yeah, because everything kind of kept chugging along mm-hmm. because of those two little front end VMs. Mm. So um, during this, like, we kind of needed to move somewhere. And we could have moved, stayed on Rackspace, but uh, Evan Phoenix, who is kind of the ops wizard, um, we kind of discussed and decided to move to uh, Amazon Web Services, just EC2. Mm-hmm. And we decided that uh, we were going to have an open source uh, AWS Chef Cookbook repo mm. on, on github because there are so many ops people that were like holy crap there's problems and it's like well, actually these problems have been existed for they had been around for a long time but no one was like there's no event like this so like right. we had the finally the uh the ship hit the iceberg right nothing like <laughs> a tragedy to catalyze people into action right so we basically had all these ops people interested and it's like let's give them something to do right let's we, we need mm-hmm. to get, have like we we have all this expertise at our hands like let's put it to good use and that's kind of what happened awesome. um we both kind of stepped back and let the community kind of uh go crazy with reproducing the existing infrastructure on aws and that's what's happened now huh. uh the rubygems.org as it is is all on, uh, 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 it's all on amazon now and it's all chefed up, which is amazing. <laughs> and go ahead. So do you, feel, do you feel better about things now? Like, was this, like, almost a good thing overall? I think, uh, I mean, no. I mean, clearly right. it, was, it was bad, but, like, I've, right. you've been asking for help for, on RubyGems for a while. Right. And it seems like this is what was needed to get people to actually do it. I think the circumstances are kind of tragic. You're right. Um, is that, like, this is what we needed to do to get people interested? Hmm. Um, I think... Overall, it's it, it is a good thing hmm. because now we have people that are invested and empowered to work on the infrastructure along with the app, hmm. and that wasn't possible before this event happened. Mm-hmm. And I think what this also did, right, is it sparked the um, discussion about gem security and gem signing, mm-hmm. which there's a lot of people interested in that, but no one knows like where to funnel that energy. So that's the next step, right? Is getting all those people that are like, wow, we should do gem signing. We should do something to fix this kind of problem. Yeah. So, so if we have someone that does compromise this stuff again, we can prove like, it's not just like taking our word for it that nothing was messed up. It's like, we can actually prove this via encryption and cryptography. Yeah. Is, is there any corporate sponsorship of this stuff? 
not really. So I'm not in, too much involved with that. So Ruby Central is a 501c nonprofit. Mm-hmm. And they sponsor basically the server costs for rubygems.org. Mm-hmm. And as for the corporate sponsorship, um, I'm not too sure what they as an organization want to do. Mm. Okay. Because it, I mean, it seems like right. having a full-time person, at least for a while, would be really great on some of this stuff. Right. So, although I, I agree, but at the same time, it's gotten along so far as an all-volunteer effort. Yeah. I think the corporate sponsorship should be more like, uh, we're going to sponsor um, X and Y person to work on this every week for the next month. Yeah, that's, that's what I was talking about. That, that would be great. Mm-hmm. But that's not see that's something that doesn't involve Ruby Central, right? Like it's not like we're going to do any services to you. It's like we're going to sponsor this person. I think that kind of thing is just awesome and it should happen. Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm looking at Chad Pytel right now. <laughs> <laughs> um cool. So are I, I got this sense um talking to you a couple months ago that you were feeling a little bit of frustration around this and kind of almost maybe a little bit of burnout around Ruby gems. Are you are you feeling reinvigorated? Um a little bit, yeah. I think what I realized, and so that I had that twelve to eight um, kind of uh, haze, and then after yeah. that, um, there was no one kind of leading people on IRC, and we ended up, I ended up like making a bunch of little breakout channels and like funneled people into each of them. So we had a breakout channel for ops. We had a breakout channel for verifying all the gems to make mm-hmm. sure none of them had been modified by this attacker person. Mm-hmm. And we had another one for uh, the actual vulnerability to fix it because we didn't we didn't have a fix yeah. <laughs> for hours. Or, uh, well, I mean, you, the, the, um, the way to attack the site was down, but we didn't have an actual fix if we were to bring the site back up. Mm-hmm. So like that kind of thing is more what I'm interested in now, I think, is like leading it from kind of like a personnel and social standpoint Mm. because, uh, no one else seems to be, (laughs) (laughs) um, like as for the development, I mean, the site's pretty stable. We haven't had a lot of changes, changes to it. There's a lot of things we want to add of questionable value. (laughs) Um, there's a, and there's a lot of support stuff. So I'm interested in like leading the development still, although there's not much to be done and lead in like keeping the support queue answered Mm -hmm. and, making sure that people that are interested have a place to go. So that's stuff I'm interested in. I think more and more I'm more interested in like the social problems in open source, not so much the technical ones. It's always a social problem. Those are always the tough ones. Yeah. Yeah. So um, how long have you been at 37 Signals now? Uh, I hit a year in December. So just over a year. Okay. How's it been? good um so the the remote thing's been weird for me yeah Um, you're you're in buffalo yeah so i moved to buffalo new york after being in boston for a few years Mm -hmm. working here yes Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh i kind of went crazy last winter because i was working uh i just started and i was working basically out of my house and out of a coffee shop that I, there's several coffee shops in my neighborhood mm-hmm. and either like the wi-fi was terrible at my house or at the coffee shop and i have a crazy active dog at home mm-hmm. and the uh work uh home uh separation was not good so uh when i originally moved here to buffalo there was a co-working space 
And then for the month of December, it didn't have any heat. So it kind of... Is <laughs> that uh, a big deal of, in Buffalo? It, yeah, it kind of died. Okay. So uh, the winter, I went crazy. And luckily, there were a few people that were interested in making a co-working space that were kind of left in literally in the cold from <laughs> from that from that one so we went on a several month journey of trying to find an office space which is a lot harder than i imagined hmm. and uh eventually in may we found uh, one of our we, we ended up partnering up with a uh, guy who runs a consulting company that had an office above a coffee shop downtown mm. called called spot and it's like everyone knows where that coffee shop is downtown so uh we started in may and we're still running <laughs> cool so this is this is co-work buffalo this is co-work buffalo yes cool so uh, so you're working full-time and running a business on the side yeah basically you're a busy um, guy and and ruby gems yeah i'm busy and open hack <laughs> yes and open hack do you need any more projects or are you about good right now i'm pretty good okay. pretty good <laughs> I, I can't sell you on my my startup or something uh no okay. i am a yeah so that the, the co-working space is kind of a side project and luckily the uh jason and david at 37 have been very supportive of it um we uh we just recently in december we kind of doubled our size so we had a room and then now we have two rooms mm-hmm. and we're now in the process of like getting more people in mm. and yeah that's been kind of interesting it's kind of been a lot of uh more marketing and delegation type stuff that i'm also not used to mm-hmm. a good example is uh just something that like we don't think of in the tech world so like we're trying to get the word out so of course the first thing we do is like oh we're us, we'll make a site and we'll get a twitter and a facebook right. account and we'll do all this stuff and uh, our business, right, may or may not be from that. Mm-hmm. So uh, a good example is uh, if we know, uh, I know through a family connection, someone who runs a front desk at a hotel. And there's always people that come in the hotel and be like, where can I get some work done? Ah. <laughs> and duh, right, we should have a business card and be like, there you go. Go right. to the co-working space. <laughs> yeah. So it's stuff like that where like we never thought about that for months. Mm. And like that could be... That could be a thing. Yeah. So, so you're, that, you're learning meat space tactics. It, yes, there are a lot of meat space things. Yeah. And that's that's good. I like that though. And that's another reason why I started it was because um, I love I love my coworkers and I we only get to see each other maybe three or four times a year. Mm-hmm. So like I was kind of going uh, nuts not uh, having any human interaction, and that's seems to be a common theme for people that work remote yeah. and that and that work at home. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So tell me more about, uh, about the, the gig. How's, how do you like working at 37 Signals? It's great. Uh, so when I started, um, we were just getting the whole company really on the new Basecamp launch. Mm-hmm. And um, that was really a blur. It was kind of a really, uh, we did a lot of pretty strict iterations, a lot of status updates on a daily basis as we were getting it ready for launch. Mm-hmm. And after that, and towards the summer, it was kind of a cool down um, period and kind of a lot of fixing bugs, a lot of little features that we shoved off. Mm. And I've I was involved with development of, few, of a few of those. And to be honest, the launch was a blur. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's just a lot to do. And um, throughout that, uh, we have um, the programmers go on call. So it's kind of a daily, not really a daily, it's kind of a monthly um, cycle of every, let's say every month, month and a half or so, you go on call for two weeks. Mm-hmm. 
And um, when I say on call, a lot of programmers are like, oh, no, you're up at two in the morning putting out fires. And that's how it is in a lot of places. And those guys I have a lot of respect for. Mm -hmm. But luckily, that's not how it is for us. Um, On call for us is we're the basically the first the second line of defense for our customers. So when there's a bug and our support folks can't solve it, it's up to us. Mm-hmm. And that might mean a bunch of things. That might mean there's an actual bug that we have to fix and deploy. That might mean there's some data that's messed up. A very common one is that uh, you can use HTML in some of our older products and they'll like forget an end tag. Uh-huh. And it's, it's like a maze to try to figure out how to fix that. Can't you just use a regular expression to make sure that doesn't happen? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trolling right, you. right. No, that, that's actually a, a funny story. Um, one of my first weeks uh, when I was on call, there was a this kind of bug happened, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Oh, let's let's squash that." Of course, you, you can't use HTML. This is a web app, and you'd break the whole thing. <laughs> so we, uh, I, I think that was in like a Basecamp to do. So in Basecamp Classic, you could like put HTML tags in and I pushed a fix to make sure that doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> and we immediately got support emails. We're like, Hey, uh, I can't, uh, make my to do item purple and bold and have a gold star next to it. Mm. I'm screwed. My workflow is destroyed. Right. And, uh, we reverted that very quickly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like, it's those kinds of things that are really interesting. It's like, you would never imagine someone doing that. Like the way we look at it, it's like, that's a bug, right. but it's someone else, that's a feature. Totally. And it's weird. Hmm. So I really enjoy the on-call stuff, um, uh, although usually uh, our support folks handle talking to our customers directly because it's they're way better at writing to our customers and they're a lot friendlier than I would be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, we, but fewer gifts, probably. Fewer gifts. And um, uh, usually, though, um, for like API issues, like if someone can't figure out the JSON response or something crazy, then like I'll take that over and talk to them. Right. So, um, or in rare cases, like we'll handle talking directly to people if they're having an extreme trouble. Yeah. So I, I like that though. It's like you get to talk to the actual humans behind that are using the software. Yeah. And And that sounds like that would be really powerful for the customer too, to like report a bug and then like someone jumps on it pretty quickly and takes, gets it done. That's kind of awesome. Yeah. That's definitely a thing. The, the support, team prides themselves on is like really fast response time and being super friendly mm-hmm. and it's been great to work with them hmm. so are you, are you writing much ruby these days or are you pretty much in ruby, ruby motion land um well yeah for the past seven almost eight months yeah it's been ruby motion land although i do jump back in for some stuff um so this app is it was really a mix of web and native so i was working on the web views pretty frequently like if we needed to fix stuff i would have to be in be in the uh, Basecamp Rails app and deploy it. Mm. So I'm really like I'm still in both, mm-hmm. um, in, in both worlds for sure, and that's that's great. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't think I'd want to leave either at this point. Yeah, w- one thing that I, I wanted to just touch on is something that you and I have talked about a little bit before, um, which is sort of the difference between consulting and product thought processes. Okay. So, you, so you used to you used to work here, and we, we do consulting for clients, and then you moved to Thirty Seven Signals as a product company. Um, how, can you talk about the differences like in like the way you might approach problems or code or, or anything like that? Yeah. So this is always a difficult subject. <laughs> um, the, the problems, I, I don't know, the problems are the same, right? So, I mean, there's things that we want to deliver, right? That, and that could be features or fixing bugs. Mm-hmm. But the end customer is kind of different, right? And one, like we have customers that 
in, in our case, we have customers that are like their little jobs are depending on us doing stuff. Like if I break the HTML for someone, that's mm. their workflow. Mm-hmm. They just, I just destroyed that. Yeah. And in another case, right? Like we're kind of answering to a client. Now those clients might be, uh, obviously they have people using, hopefully they have people using their software, but I feel like the barrier there is, is that, mm. and it's kind of, it kind of sheds things in a different light. I, I think, uh, there's a lot of things that I remember arguing about. We would argue until forever about testing. We would argue until forever about design. And a lot of those things, um, they, they seem to drop by the wayside, at least for us in the pro- in, when we're making the products at 37. Mm-hmm. When it's like, that's too much. Like, it's silly. Like, if it's, it's, if it's getting in the way of delivering value and making our customers happy, then it's a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I'm super embarrassed about is that there's not really any tests for, for the Basecamp app. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, at, that sucks, but at the same time, right. Um, all the content, right. That's decently tested. Mm-hmm. Um, was it, did it, was it less pleasurable to develop it without tests? Do you have more resistance to, or are you, are you more afraid to change things and doing more manual testing? I'm No, I'm the whole app's like, under two thousand, maybe just over two thousand lines of code. It's mm-hmm. not really that big, mm-hmm. um, at least for a iOS app mm-hmm. that I've seen. Um, I, I guess the confidence is not that hasn't been a problem for me because it's pretty small, and I'm really the only developer on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the designer I worked with, Jason Zimdaris, has been in it a bit to like tweak. He he did some great work with. Uh, the buttons and a bunch of other uh, image and uh, native controls, but like it's mostly been me. So refactoring stuff hasn't been that big of a like the confidence level hasn't been that big of a deal. Hmm. I guess I, since I don't have enough iOS experience, like I would never. It's hard to like if you're gonna teach someone Rails or Ruby or really anything, it's kind of hard to shove them directly into a test flow immediately sure. when you're trying to teach them the concepts and how things and how pieces fit together. Yeah, I think for the next app rewrite, I definitely am gonna explore doing trying to do tests first, and even the, the features would go from here. Mm-hmm. Yes, but like the thing, like we are still trying to prove right that um, this thing was going to work. Yeah. That the experience on the native side was going to be not only like as good, but better. So like that, like a testing workflow didn't really make sense for me at least. And for iOS, the built-in test framework for Ruby motion is kind of shitty. Mm-hmm. The, uh, at least from what I could see, it couldn't test more than one controller at a time. And a controller is basically like the, the kind of the base unit. So like when you're looking at a list of things, that's a controller. Mm. When you're looking at um, a web view, you might have a controller backing that. And the whole app, like there's not a lot of native logic in it. So the whole app is basically the transitions between controllers instead of one controller at a time. Mm. And I couldn't figure out a way to test that with easily with the built-in framework with RubyMotion. There mm-hmm. are integration test frameworks, but I didn't get it. I didn't really get a chance to look into them. Mm. So, so you seem to indicate that at 37, you guys are a little less uh, obsessed, I guess, with testing everything. It's sort of more like a do a do a decent job of it, but if it gets in the way, kind of just can it. I think that's that's fairly accurate. Uh, the the stuff that's like really important, like. Stuff that's like super important, billing, uh, core kind of functionality in, in models is tested, mm-hmm. and that, and especially when we fix bugs, mm-hmm. regression tests, of course. Mm-hmm. 
as for TDing, that's it's not definitely not as good as as I saw in a lot of the apps we worked on at at Thoughtbot. There's not a lot of um, kind of vertical integration tests where we're testing like a whole part of the stack. Mm-hmm. And the rationale there is that, um, at least that I've seen, is that if you're going to break to dos, um, that's going to be pretty rare. Like if you're going to break checking and unchecking to dos, you, you re- not only did you really fuck up, you also uh, you really should have tested that yourself before deploying if you just messed with to-dos. Mm-hmm. So that kind of thing is, it's exceptionally rare and the cost of like writing and maintaining that and having like the full-scale integration test is like not worth the times it's going to break, at least that we see. We also do pretty decent review as well. Mm-hmm. Um, changes, we'll usually do pull requests and it's not mandatory to get it in, which is fine. Mm-hmm. But um, if it's something that's kind of uh, kind of big, we'll definitely do a review of it. We'll get another programmer to put his eyes on it. Interesting. So have you been happy with this approach? Like if you were going to start your own app for your own project on the side, would you sort of take the same tack? Uh, a Ruby Motion app or a Rails app? A uh, Rails app. Uh, no. Um, I definitely would still try to integration test it. Okay. Um, and the little... I, I don't see why not, because that's the way I, I, I think and work, is I try to do it from the top down. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, the, and even the features that I've tried to write, I've tried to do as much testing as, as possible, although lately, the last eight months haven't been a good, good metric yeah. for that. Do you guys generally do unit tests for things, individual models and things like that? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, the, the place where it gets kind of sketchy is integration is integration level. Mm-hmm. We do do a lot of functional tests. Um, a good example that I'm familiar with is the API. So like we will test that um, the correct JSON response is, is, is coming out mm-hmm. and the correct uh, response code and all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, the full scale, the Selenium, or any kind of uh, the runners, we don't, we don't have that really that much of. And I feel like that's also a case of like, I remember spending a lot of time like maintaining those on CI. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a pain. Yeah, it's a lot of time. True. So, okay. All right. There's two more quick things I want to ask you about, and then uh, I'm gonna let you get back to Ruby Motion Land. Sure. Okay. So the first is, have you been getting obsessed with good coffee lately? Yes. Tell me about that. So this is due to my uh, my good friend and co Cohort Buffalo found, co-founder uh, Kevin Purdy. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> what a weird question. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so at Cowork, we have this amazing device called the Chemex, mm-hmm. which is a, um, it looks like an hourglass vase, but apparently it's a, like, uh, chemistry-inspired um, coffee-making machine. And um, we have a whole system for it, and we've been considering publishing it. This is all Kevin's fault. He's made me obsessed with this. <laughs> uh, we have a whole system of, I, I've learned that the only people that really, uh, that have gram scales are uh, drug dealers and people that have that really enjoy coffee. Uh-huh. Which is also drug use, by the way. Yes. Oh, yes. Let's call it spade a spade. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, like, we have a whole system where we weigh the we get freshly gra- uh, fresh beans from Rochester. Uh, we tear the scale with the grinder. We grind the right amount. We pour. We get the right 
amount of water and we pour it in and it just makes the smoothest, most amazing coffee. And it's amazing. We, I guess the, a good way to put it is that we, our co-working space is literally above a coffee shop. It's literally above where they roast the coffee for all of, for their entire chain mm-hmm. in the Western New York region. And we still brew our own coffee upstairs because <laughs> okay. we're that obsessed about it. Got it. So is this a worthy journey for me to go down and, and start caring about? I, yeah. Or is this uh, one of those things where like then you can't drink other coffee and you become one of those people? Um, it could be both. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's definitely the Chemex process is a lo- it's pretty decent investment. Um, you need the po- the pot. You need a decent water heater. Uh, you don't need the, the, the gram scale, but you should try to grind, grind the beans. Mm-hmm. Um, at least get the you could grind them at a, at a store or whatever, mm-hmm. but, uh, the filters in the pot are like not cheap. So it's, right. it's been a great investment. I can, I can put it that way. Okay, cool. And the last thing is, um, open hack. Yes. Can you give me like 60 seconds on open hack? Sure. Uh, open hack is a meetup where you're encouraged to just code on anything. And it's modeled after many Boston RB hack fests we used to have. Hmm where basically people would come in, you give an introduction, you say who you are, what you're going to work on, if you need help, if you're just going if you're just there to bounce ideas off of. And then it'd just be a pretty solid 2 hours of just getting stuff done or socializing. <laughs> and um eventually it would all tear down in the socializing because there's usually we we would we get pizza and beer mm-hmm. or other food. And I think it's really just an environment to get some stuff done and it doesn't have to be open source. It can be personal stuff. It can be work stuff if you're that dedicated. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started it because we didn't really have a hack fest type thing here in Buffalo, like we used to have in Boston. And I really missed that. I really missed just getting people together and work on a semi-regular basis. Mm-hmm. So, so this has become a, like a national thing now, right? Or, I, yeah, yeah. I'm really surprised with the pickup it had. So all I did was basically write down how the Boston events, the Boston events used to run and basically promoted it from there. Mm-hmm. And we have um, just over 40 cities now. We have, not all of them are running events yet. I'd say probably like 10 to 15 are. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them are like just getting their stuff together. They're getting a time. They're getting people. So it's kind of more just like a loose framework of how to run a meetup. Cool. Yeah, I'm looking at the site. You got a lot of cities. They're all all over the place. Yeah, I'm really excited. I I would love to get to 100 by the end of the year. I don't know how that's going to happen. You should be on a podcast that has a wide <laughs> listenership, <laughs> like <laughs> like some go. other podcast. There you go. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's openhack.github.com, okay. and there's a lot of uh, there's definitely a ton of cities over 10 countries now. I think. Mm-hmm. And like I said, like not all of them are running yet, but a lot of them are in the stages of organizing. Mm-hmm. And um, what I love about it is that it gets people that are in the tech community kind of a thing to do. Mm. Um, that's been big for me here is getting the programmers to get come out of their, their caves and getting them together and seeing the cool stuff they're working on. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we're the only city that has that problem. I think most of the cities on this list are not huge. Uh, they're not tech hubs. Mm. And a lot of the tech hubs might be oversaturated with events like this, but I think a lot of the smaller cities aren't. So sure. this gives the smaller cities a voice and a place and kind of a, a small framework to run events like this. Yeah, cool. Um, so, Nick, if somebody wanted to get in touch with you, what is a good way to do that? Uh, sure. My handle is QRush on Twitter, just like it sounds. Mm-hmm. That's a good way to do to yell at me. Yeah. 
Uh, open hack is openhack.github.com. Yes, it is. Anything else you want to plug while I got you here? Uh, I think that's it. I think you're right. I have way too much stuff to do. <laughs> you got a lot going on. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that uh, wraps everything up. But it's Nick. It's, it's been fun talking to you as always. Thanks, man. Hopefully, I'll see you at uh, some conference soon. Sounds good. Or come to Boston once the snow has receded. Uh, I don't know. You guys got to dig yourself out first. Yeah, we'll work on that. (laughs) All right. Uh, If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash podcasts slash 36. And we're going to pretend honorarily that this is 37 for appropriateness for Nick, but couldn't quite make it. So it's 36. Uh, Today's podcast was recorded and produced by Chad Pytel, edited by Edward Lovell. And uh, it's been great talking to you, Nick. Take care. Thanks, man. Bye.